Great. Well, thanks so much for being, um, for, for being at this water panel so early. My name is Nina Satija. I'm the environment reporter for the Texas Tribune. And I'm really looking forward to the discussion we're going to have on water today. Um, let me introduce our panelists. Um, first on my left is uh, Carlos Rubenstein, chairman of the Texas Water Development Board. And before serving as chairman of the Water Development Board, um, Carlos was appointed by Governor Rick Perry to be on the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality in 2009. Um, uh, next, we have Andy Sansom, executive director of the Meadow Center for Water and the Environment at Texas State. Before joining the Meadow Center, he served as executive director of the Texas Nature Conservancy and executive director of the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. He also founded the Parks and Wildlife Foundation of Texas. Then we have Ed Archuleta. He's former president and CEO of El Paso Water Utilities, and he now serves as the director of water initiatives at the University of Texas at El Paso. He was also appointed by President Obama to represent the United States as chairman on the Pecos River Compact Commission. Uh, Kip Averett, a former state senator and um, state legislator, he's a, now a certified, or he now works with the public affairs firm Averett and Associates. Um, he is also a former chairman of the Senate Natural Resources Committee and now a member of the Board of Trustees for the Texas Water Foundation. And Tom Vaughn, uh, president of the Rio Grande International Study Center, he's a founder and president of the center, a Laredo-based environmental nonprofit organization whose mission is to protect and preserve the Rio Grande and local green spaces. He's also a professor emeritus in the Department of Biology and Chemistry at Texas A&M International University. So again, thank you all. Thank you to our panelists for being here. Um, Carlos, I want to start with you. We had, of course, this past November historic vote in Texas, um, and voters approved by a wide margin using $2 billion from the state's rainy day fund uh, for loans for new water projects. So tell us a little bit about how the implementation of all of that is going. Oh, you bet. I appreciate the question. It's great to be on this panel, uh, folks that I've worked with on water for many, many years. Um, Prop 6, Texans showed up uh, last November and by a margin of 73% approved, moving $2 billion from the Rainy Day Fund to a fund strictly dedicated uh, for moving water projects that are in the state water plan forward. But it also required that a lot of activity take place prior to disbursement of the funds. So what has occurred uh, so far this year is the 16 regional water planning groups in Texas have already implemented the uniform set of standards on how we're going to prioritize and prick these projects. We're investing the fund. The fund is making uh, money, and that's critical. So we'll be able to do that incentivized financing that, we, that will help incentivize moving of the projects. They'd also required that we develop a rule on how we're going to carry that project forward. That's been the bulk of our work this year. Uh, the rule was uh, offered to the public in June for a public comment period. That public comment period ended under the statute we're supposed to adopt that rule no later than March of next year. Right now, uh, and I, I have to thank our staff at the Water Development Board. They've been done a great job. That rule is actually now scheduled to be adopted as early as uh, the first or second week in November now. Uh, that is critical because that will put us now in a position to start accepting applications to actually start funding these projects. And I think that that's the most exciting part of what we've done. We've also tested the funding models moving forward. And we now are very comfortable in being able to tell you that in the first decade of this project, um, it, or this process alone, remember we're doing a 50-year horizon for water, but in the first decade alone, we will be able to take in and fund in excess of $8 billion worth of water projects. And that's critical for being able to put Texas in a position uh, to be able to uh, respond to droughts in a better way. Tell us what kind of projects we might be looking at. I know the applications haven't come in yet, but what are we looking at? You know, the, 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 when we talk about water needs in Texas, we recognize what the state water plan already tells us. We know that when we look at a 50-year horizon, we're going to grow. There's going to be 82% more Texans. And so we're going to go from 25 million Texans to about 46 million. We also know that if we do nothing, uh, we're going to be short 8.3 million acre-feet of water. Uh, and that's a substantial amount of water. So where's the water going to come from? Well, we hear a lot of discussion about conservation and reuse, and we're hopeful and are eager to see those projects come in. Uh, there's a reason for that. A third of our water need can be met by conservation and reuse into the future. Uh, but it also represents the least expensive projects that we'll do because it's water we already have. And so I do think we're going to get conservation and reuse projects in the early going. The other third has to come from using water that we have today in a better way, and that means including moving it from where it is to where it isn't and the infrastructure that's needed. 
we're going to see some of those projects too as well. The last third is our innovative projects uh, that are needed. And here we're talking about brackish groundwater desalination. And yes, we're already doing it in Texas, but clearly we have to do more of it. Seawater desal, aquifer storage and recovery, and yes, reservoirs. Uh, those take long time to, to get done, but what is critical within SWIFT is the legislature gives the authority to do these funding cycles every six months. And every six months, we'll be picking up projects that are ready to go. They will come from any one of those thirds. So I'd like to open it up to the other panelists to talk a little bit about this process. As you're looking at the implementation of Proposition 6 and um, the bill that the legislature passed last year that enabled that vote, what are you watching for? What are the questions that you still have about how this process is going to play out? Well, first of all, uh, Nina, uh, let me say that uh, I believe that Chairman Rubenstein has been one of the best appointments that Governor Perry has made, and we should have some real confidence in the way this program is being rolled out. I think the key thing for us, the cities of, as Mr. Archuleta can tell you, the cities of San Antonio and El Paso have lowered their consumption of water by 40% per capita and still flourished economically. And so I think that we just got to remember, and I was thrilled to hear him say, that the cheapest and easiest water for us to get is the water we already have. And I think as long as we can keep that as a mantra in this program, then we will make it. What about you, Ed, as someone who's obviously in the, you know, worked in the, in the utility business, what, where do you think utilities are going to go? Well, I also am very uh, uh, enthused about uh, what the legislature did in 2013 and what the progress has been made by the Texas Water Development Board under Carter's leadership. Uh, they're way ahead of schedule, it appears to me. Uh, utilities uh, in El Paso and other, uh, others that I talked to across the state, I think, are anxious to see uh, you know, the projects move forward. Uh, bear in mind that um, you know there aren't any grants out there anymore. Like uh, we built a number of projects in El Paso with grants, either EPA grants or a combination of. Uh, Can't hear you. Oh, my Can you hear me now? No. Okay. Thanks. A uh, combination of grants or loans uh, from the federal government, bonds that we would issue, but uh, in El Paso it's a double A plus rating on the bonds, and it's a good rate, but. Uh, with the financing that the Texas Water Development Board will, will issue, or there's three different methods, I understand, interest rates, maybe some, some deferment uh, on the interest rates for a period of time, or maybe buy into capacity. For example, if, if El Paso were to need a, a 48-inch pipeline, but it's not needed, the, the whole entire capacity is not needed today, but maybe 24-inch, they would, they would buy the capacity and then uh, the utility would buy it back over time. So those are all tremendous uh, innovative ways today to fund these projects. Uh, right now, it, it's a good time to build projects anywhere because of the lower interest rates and the program that they have uh, going forward is going to build those projects. Do you think the El Paso utility might actually apply for particular projects for funding? Yes, right now there's a couple that I'm aware of. One is a, a direct potable reuse project, 10 million gallons per day. Okay. Uh, the project uh, has gone through the planning stages, they're getting ready to do pilot plant work, so to the extent that they apply for the design and construction, I think that's one of them. Uh, there's a surface water treatment plant that will be expanded from 60 to 80 million gallons per day, and that's already been designed. So. Those are a couple that I know of that will be applied for by the utility. And Senator David, what are you, or Kip, what are you watching for um, as someone who's now able to observe this process and not be a, as much a part of it in the legislature? Well, I have to uh, uh, applaud the uh, vision uh, of the legislature and the leadership last uh, session. I think we have a little microphone problem here. <laughs> Just, there, there we go. go. That's what we can hear. It. Okay. Uh, they saw fit to. Uh, fund the state water plan, the financing uh, part of it, uh, which is all well and good, but without the enthusiastic leadership that's in place now at the Water Development Board and the diligent staff work that's going on, uh, I see I see all three directors in airports all over the state, and I, and I hear stories about they were just here. Uh, they're really working hard to make it uh, a reality. Uh, I know they're anxious to... Uh, form the process correctly and get the money out the door in an appropriate manner. And, uh, you know, that makes the state water plan a viable plan. And uh, we've had a good process in the past, but now we have a viable plan that's actually going to unfold. And, and, I, and I'm just going to mention the, uh, the, the only thing that I see that might be uh, troublesome is 
uh, and, and the vision that the legislature had to put a uh, component in there for conservation financing uh, was uh, brilliant. And as Andy said, it's our low-hanging fruit. We have to do it. And Chairman Rubenstein has been adamant about we're going to put that into place. The only thing I'm, I'm worried about is uh, are, are there enough types of conservation projects that fit the model that we currently have? Mm -hmm. And we're going to struggle, I think, finding utilities to uh, borrow money to do conservation programs. But that doesn't mean that it's not going to be used. I do, I do think if, uh, you know, uh, water loss issues uh, mm -hmm. count as conservation, which I, I personally think they should, uh, then that, that problem will probably not be realized. So there's a lot of great things... Uh, coming our way that have not been on the table in the past. We're very excited. Do water loss projects count in that 20% conservation? Water loss, we, right now we're finalizing the, the, uh, the rules, and that is one of the very strong comments that we've gotten. If you look at all of the comments that we got from the public, we've got over 8,000 comments. The majority of them centered on how we're defining conservation and reuse, and, and including should conservation and reuse be one thing or separate them out. This issue is coming up. Our staff is looking at it. But I do want to mention that we already have existing programs as well, as well for line loss. Uh, obviously, they don't have all of the benefits of SWIFT, but they do have some loan forgiveness. They do have some reductions in interest rates that are already available. It is absolutely critical. I think Senator Aver is right on, uh, on, two, on, on, on two issues particularly, is the work that all of us need to do together to identify those projects. Yeah. Uh, and that starts with the regional water planning process, something that you had uh, such a critical role in doing when you were in the legislature. Uh, but we need to find them because it is the cheapest water we have. Uh, and, and all of it, whatever needs to count for it, we need to, uh, need to identify it. And I think uh, the communities will be looking for that. Um, I do want to go back, if you, if you would allow me, to a comment that uh, Mr. Archuleta made about, um, in a passing comment about El Paso has, I think you said, a double-A rating. Right. Uh, that's an additional benefit of coming to the board. And the state of Texas enjoys the best credit rating you can have, a AAA credit rating. So if El Paso, instead of going to the market, comes to the board, aside from all of the, 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 the benefits that SWIFT has, which you enumerated them, the reduction of the interest rate, the buying of the interest, the deferral of the payments, just by coming to us, the users realize an additional benefit because they're borrowing money even cheaper. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that that's exciting times. Very much. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to this line loss issue again because just to frame it, I think these gentlemen can tell you that there are cities in Texas that lose as much as 30% of their water just through poorly maintained water mains. On the other hand, to give you a, sort of a feel for the scope of that, if you took the, all the water mains in, just in Dallas and put them end to end, they would stretch from Key West to Anchorage. So you're talking about a huge you know, task to try to deal with it. Yeah. Well, and, and then let's take that a little further. You know, we're, right now I think you all are thinking, well, they're talking about potable water on the, on the front end, and we are, but we have line losses on both sides of the water equation. Mm. And fortunately, we do have programs, you know, we need to protect the environment as well, and whatever we can do, and I know that, that you have an interest in also discussing water quality, we have programs and projects that can also help on the wastewater side. Communities are facing uh, infrastructure that obviously needs to to be uh, kept up. When we talk about the state water plan, and we talk just about new sources of water, it's $53 billion. But when you talk about the entire state water plan, the issues you are raising, the infrastructure improvements, the capacity issues that need to occur as well in cities, the total cost of the state of Texas is really $231 billion. We all need to work together to make all that happen. Right, yeah. Nina, maybe I can add to that and give, talk a little bit about my experience in El Paso. When I came to El Paso in 1989, we had about a 15% unaccounted for water for water loss. Back then, if you, if you look at the American Water Works Association standards, that was considered an excellent system, okay? <laughs> but what I told my board at that time, uh, we're getting ready to start a conservation program on the demand side with our customers. You know, we're going to have to tighten up our system, not only, not only to show our customers that we're doing the same as what they're doing on the supply side, but also, that water, if you can capture that water, that's water you don't have to <laughs> obtain, right? So uh, we, through a number of projects, uh, anything from meet, water meters, we had water meters that were old, and there was not a real rigorous replacement programs, and even our large water meters, which are, you know, compound water meters, as you know, they can, 
they can vary quite a bit. They have to be looked at, particularly if there's a use and what have you. But we had reservoirs that were leaking, concrete reservoirs. Uh, I changed the standards to go to all steel uh, reservoirs so we wouldn't have that in the future. And basically began the underground monitoring program, which we have in place today. We've got very sophisticated monitors that monitor. Uh, a truck drives by, picks up the signals, identifies a leak, then we come back, fix the leak before it becomes a break. As a result, we're, El Paso is now at about 6% unaccounted for water. Okay. Well, Tom, I want to, um, you, you obviously come at this from an, another perspective, and Carlos mentioned uh, water quality is an issue. I'm kind of curious, you know, as, if you, as you followed the debate over Prop 6 and how we should fund the water plan and, and issues of, of drought, um, do you think those do anything for the issues that you really look at, which are more water quality issues? Well, first of all, can you hear me? First of all, I want to. I was really happy that the voters of the state of Texas uh, overwhelmingly passed Prop 6. And I also echo that uh, I think Carlos is the man to be in charge of this. Uh, when we talk about <coughs> the plan and the conservation issue, uh, I know there's a relatively small amount of the funding that's going to go to agriculture overall. But I think major conservation can be done in agriculture. I mean, agriculture is a huge user of water in the state of Texas for irrigation. And as I drive around the state and see some of the, the irrigation techniques that are in practice today, I think they could be improved on greatly and we could save a lot of water that way. Uh, in terms of water quality, and as you may know, I live down on the Rio Grande and uh, have been looking at water quality in that body of water, especially in the Laredo area, for a number of years. And we do have some serious water quality issues on the Rio Grande. Uh, it's not unique to the, to the Rio Grande. But I've often said one of the worst things, if maybe the worst thing that can happen to a river is for it to be an international boundary. You have two countries, uh, a limited resource with different ideas about water quality standards and uh, you know, the way that we should be taking care of these things. Now in the Laredo area, some of you may know that uh, in 1996, the Nuevo Laredo International Wastewater Treatment Plant came online. And you say, why is it international if it's in Mexico? Well, the reason is part of the funding came from the U.S. federal government, $19 million, $2 million from the state of Texas. And we continue to uh, put money into that wastewater treatment plant for, uh, to try to ensure that the standards of the effluent meet U.S. standards. Uh, that plant is a 31 million gallon per day design capacity. And before the plant was built, there were 25 million gallons per day of raw sewage, domestic and uh, industrial waste going directly into the river. Okay, so the plant was big enough at 31 million gallons to handle all of the, the effluent. Uh, a couple of years ago, part of the Clean Rivers program with the International Boundary and Water Commission that I was working with, we did a, a bacteria study in the Laredo area. And we, we uh, conclude, and, and Nuevo Laredo admits, they're still putting somewhere between five and six million gallons of raw sewage in the river every day. So we've gone from 25 to six. Okay, but the problem is a lot of those outfalls that are still putting wastewater into the river should have been connected back in the 90s, and they haven't been. And there, I mean, there are a lot of issues there, but certainly uh, when you've when you got two different countries dealing with the same body of water, uh, you have the special issues that have to be dealt with. Yeah, and I, I guess I'm kind of interested to hear from all of you. And for issues like, you know, that we've got other issues with Mexico on, on water as well, in the, in the Rio Grande in particular, um, what role can the Water Development Board play or state legislators play when you're talking about a much broader problem? Well, let's talk about the role that, they, that the legislature and, 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 the, and, and the governor's office 
uh, leadership and the Water Development Board and TCEQ are playing in, 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 in that regard. Um, let's start with the problems on the Rio Grande, and I'm glad you brought it up because we've shared so right. much of our career on that river. Um, I agree, and, and I remember doing studies uh, eight miles downstream of those outfalls, and what we found in biodiversity was interesting, to say the least. Uh, but, the, but, the problem, but the problems of the Rio Grande, for example, let's talk about first water quantity. We have an international treaty with Mexico, the 1944 treaty. Um, it links two major basins of the United States uh, and Mexico. We have an obligation to deliver to Mexico out of the Colorado River, not this one, but the other one, uh, one and a half million acre feet to, to Mexico every year. We have done that without fail. Mexico, in return, has to deliver to the Rio Grande 350,000 acre feet a year to the Rio Grande. They consistently fail to do that. That has environmental impacts as well, aside from water quantity. Uh, and so it degrades water quality and, 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 and it degrades the ecology. We have that issue. What has uh, the, the Texas leadership, the governor's office leadership uh, done? They uh, Just last session, they passed a resolution calling on the United States to make sure that the treaty is honored. We, that, that continues today. Uh, deal repeatedly with, uh, for example, Representative Eddie Lucy III on this issue, Congressman Vela, Senator Cornyn's office. They just issued a letter this week to the president saying, this, this is a serious issue, and honoring the treaty matters. Texans depend on that water. The impact of the Rio Grande Valley when we don't get that water, 4,840 jobs are at risk every year. $395 million impact to the agricultural community just in the first iteration. So we have that issue. On water quality issue, TCEQ has been a leader in uh, trying to develop a binational approach on how we can, recognizing that we have different set of rules, still find the commonality of where we can make it work. And they've concentrated on the segment of the river that is below Falcon Lake, between Falcon and the tidal segment, because that's where we can do the most good. If we can find a way to do that with EPA, and EPA has been very helpful in the process, then it can serve as a model for the rest of the Rio Grande and then hopefully for other international streams as well. So on both sides, we need to find ways on how to cooperate not try to have one country accept the, the standards of the other, but find the commonality that exists on water quality sides. Uh, but on the water quantity side, if you have two parties to a treaty and one chooses to ignore it, then you don't have a treaty. And then we need to resolve that as well. That's my take. Okay. Well, I wanted to go back to something else you had said earlier, Carlos, about the state water plan and how we expect to meet the state's needs in the next 50 years. Sure. You said you know, a third conservation, a third... Um, you know, innovative water projects. Um, I'm thinking about what the state water plan, what's actually in the state water plan. Okay. And I'm, I'm wondering what all of you think about, you know, the reality of the state water plan as it is today. It's obviously a living document. It's getting updated every five years. I think we've got something like 30 reservoirs in that plan right now. Mm -hmm. um, not a whole lot of desal, although that's a big part of the discussion. So how do we get to a state water plan that is maybe more realistic than the one we had today? Think about the wisdom that the legislature uh, had put into House Bill 4. One of the critical things, it isn't just the, that we got $2 billion and we get to fund these projects. The legislature said, you better prioritize them. You better answer whether the projects can actually occur or not. So yes, you may have, and I think it's, it's, it's in the low 20s, the reservoirs. Those may be in the, in, 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 in the state water plan. But you haven't answered the question, can you overcome regulatory hurdles, mm -hmm. environmental pressures, and, and are they going to be built? What happens if you're betting on a project that you can't ever build? If that project falls away, the need and the demand for water still remains. The legislature addressed that under House before. They charged all of the 16 regional planning groups to prioritize their projects with five criteria, decade of need, viability, feasibility, sustainability, and cost-effectiveness. The middle three answer the question you just asked. We are now testing whether those projects can move forward. We're now, and, and I think that while we're testing the projects that were identified in the 2012 plan, you also correctly mentioned we get to revisit the plan every five years. I think all of the lessons learned, what the legislature asked us to do under House Bill 4, will make future state water plans that much more concrete uh, on projects that actually will have a better chance of occurring. And they'll move it forward uh, better. That's, that's the way I view it. I think I welcome the fact that the legislature directed all of us to, uh, to test the projects in that manner. I was really pleased to hear the chairman say that innovation was going to be a part of the strategy because one of my concerns has been that we've been in danger 
of doing the same things we've been doing for 50 years and investing in things that served us well in the 60s and 70s. We're in a state where we probably have as much uh, intellectual property in our universities and research centers that can be brought to bear on this issue. And we need to find ways of bringing to the marketplace and bringing into this water situation, Mr. Archuleta knows better than anyone, things that we didn't do before but that clearly provide the promise of, of helping us get through this. Innovation is an absolute necessity. Let me, let me kind of uh, comment on that, too, and what, what uh, Carlos talked about. Uh, you know, when you think about it, uh, the plan that we currently have at, the, at the, state, the state water plan and when it was developed, you know, uh, it's done every five years, right? That's correct. So it's an iterative process, and it takes a while to get to the, to the, to the end of it. But when you look at desalination and reuse, there's been major, major changes in innovation and use of those tools, you know, not only in Texas, uh, but in other states, particularly western states and Florida, for example. So I think there, there are areas where you can amend the state water, I mean, the, the regional water plans, mm -hmm. you know, and that'll be up to the board to decide whether or not that, you know, is, is something that could be done. So, for example, you take a major project, and, and it's, it, the, the state water plan is like a 40,000-foot level plan, okay? Mm -hmm. It's not a detailed plan. And some of these major projects will take several years to develop, so... You may have to buy water rights, you may have to buy land, you have to do preliminary engineering before you actually get to the construction. So those things have to kind of kind of happen over time. But I think there are, it looks to me like hopefully the Water Development Board will be, you know, case by case, take a look at these projects and, and uh, make sure that we have uh, meaningful projects going forward. Kip wanted to jump in. And sure. uh, I want to address the conservation part of the state water plan. Uh, we all know... Uh, uh, historically, conservation is something good that somebody else can do. <laughs> uh, and it's an important, as you mentioned, Chairman, it's an extremely important component of the state water plan. But uh, in the plan, it basically says we're going to employ best management practices, and that's going to result in Region H, 105,000 acre feet. And that's really about it. Uh, 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 about a year and a half ago, I started a project that I call the Goldwater Project in Region H. And what we have been doing is recruiting utilities and collecting their data to see how much conservation they're actually employed and how, we're, and how that compares to the 50-year the goal of 105,000 acre-feet. And, of course, we find out it's woefully short. But then we, uh, what we're doing in our second phase this year is uh, we're going back to those utilities and showing them a, what is their fair share of that 105,000? And here is a suite of 17 or 18 different economically viable uh, strategies that your utility could choose from. And uh, we, it's kind of like an Excel program. If you do 2% of this or 5% of that, you can reach your, quite frankly, very modest goal. And so uh, uh, we've been successful in recruiting enough utilities that by the end of next summer, we will be able to show Region H is on track with implemented conservation strategies sufficient to meet their goal. And uh, we're working with the, uh, the regional planning group down there, and that's going to be part of their new uh, regional plan. So Region H will have actually in their plan a, a, a footprint of how they're going to reach their conservation goal. And we'd like to see that go mm -hmm. statewide after we succeed. Well, that's, you know, it's interesting you're mentioning something that kind of makes me think of follow-up. You know, we, we award, we'll award funds for certain projects, for loans for certain projects. They'll be about conservation or other things. And there's a, certainly a very rigorous application process and a vetting process for those. What kind of follow-up do you envision from the Water Development Board to say, let's make sure this is actually happening as they said that it would? That, that is, uh, I appreciate that question. There's, there's so many aspects of SWIFT. Uh, that, that in the end it is about the producing of the water and making the projects be successful. Um, so we have within the agency folks that not only look at the projects about for, to see if they can overcome regulatory hurdles, do they make sense, we also within SWIFT are going to have to have projects that are ready to go. That means that they are going to be able to produce that water, whether it's through conservation, uh, innovative ideas, uh, or development of new sources. We have to measure those goals as well because we're still targeting meeting that demand. 
Uh, having said that, I want to come back to, to a point that uh, Ed had mentioned, um, and, and I think that uh, also leads to the question that you asked. We have changed conditions that occur over five years. So it isn't that you just finish the 2012 planning, you forget about it, you've got to live with it. There are abilities to change it. Just, last, just this week, um, on, on Thursday, the board approved an amendment to Region N, which is a Corpus Christi area, in their plan, when they, uh, uh, when they had it, seawater desal was not a big thing in it. But obviously because of changing innovations and, and new thinking, uh, they petitioned themselves to change the plan. They petitioned the board to change it for them, and we approved it. And so that certainly is allowed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about the implementation of Prop 6 and HB4, and, and so I wanted to also talk about what comes after this, you know, from a legislative and a policy standpoint. What else needs to happen? I heard from a lot of legislators talking to them about things like groundwater legislation. Well, let's get Prop 6. Let's, let's have everyone vote on that, and then we'll deal with it. Well, we're at that point. So what, what needs to happen now? I'm, I'm uh, as, as we've all said, you know, we're, we're thrilled with this program. But I think a, a central message today should be that we're not going to simply be able to build our way out of this issue. Think about the Blanco, which is very close to where we are today. The Blanco starts out in Kendall County, just below the Gillespie County line. It flows southeastward toward Hayes County, where I work. Before it gets to the Hayes County line, it goes back in the ground. Mm -hmm. Basically, all of the flow from the Blanco goes back into the aquifer. It flows underground to a place called Jacob's Well, which many of you have visited. It comes back up out of the ground, flows down Cypress Creek through the village of Wimberley, and back in the Blanco. If you tried to get a water rights permit today to take any water out of the Blanco, you couldn't get it because it's already been overcommitted. But if you want to go up above Jacob's Well and drill a hole in the ground, you can take just about as much of it as your man or woman enough to pump with hardly any restraints. And it's the same water. We have to come to grips with the fact that we treat groundwater and surface water differently in this state. And until we do that, then we, we're, we're, if you have children that are asking you what to do when they grow up, tell them to be water lawyers because there's <laughs> going to be an awful lot of litigation. Between people who, both of whom have been told by the state that the same water is theirs. Can I add Can to I? that? Oh, go ahead. Comment on it. Uh, I, think, I think this whole issue, uh, Carlos mentioned one of the, one of the three areas of, of uh, you know, implementation is moving water from point A to point B. And, and I, right now, you know, there's been a, the Texas Water Conservation Association and other groups are trying to put together some comprehensive, uh, you know, legislation that hopefully they can agree on in order to allow that. I think one of the areas that I, they, I'm told seems to have pretty much agreement is the permit time limit, time. In other words, right now it's five, five years for most, most groundwater districts. We need a 30-year because if you're going to borrow money and issue bonds or even borrow from the Water Development Board, five years is not enough to, you know, you can't do a project in five years. So I think, I think that's come to grips. But the other one is how do you, how do you get through the, the current, you know, basically the rural capture and the groundwater conservation districts and the issue of surface water versus groundwater, et cetera. It's a complex issue, but something that has to be eventually uh, resolved. I, I do think that... Uh, that innovation, as you talked about, and technology, uh, if the state were to say in the next session, you know, these are the top issues that we don't know about, that we want resolved, whether they're policy issues or whether they're technical issues, and go after that, I think that would go a long way, and then put the best minds to work on it, you know, uh, which is, uh, I've been involved in national water research organizations like the Water Research Foundation and Water Reuse Foundation, and basically, those groups depend upon what comes from universities, you know, as ideas. I think the state could identify these are the issues that we need to resolve and then, you know, somehow put the resources behind them in order to resolve them. Another one, and I believe Dr. Vaughn will, will uh, agree that the biggest water quality issue that we face statewide today is not from wastewater treatment plants and chemical plants, it's from water that runs off the landscape. We call it non-point source pollution. In Texas, virtually the entire landscape is owned by private citizens. And right now, we're not doing anything to keep them, to keep the biggest 
single terrestrial environmental issue that we face is the continued breakup of family land in Texas. We lose rural and agricultural land faster than any other state. All of our watersheds, all of our recharge areas, and now virtually all of our pollution comes off of these watersheds, which we are do, doing virtually nothing to protect. The exception to that has been in Bear County, in Travis County, and Hayes County, in which they've actually invested in buying the development rights from private landowners out in the watersheds. And we need to be finding ways statewide to protect private land, keep those landowners on the landscape and doing the right thing. Yeah, if I could go back to the, uh, the moving water from where it is to where somebody else would like to have it. You know, on the Rio Grande, uh, there have been several proposals over the last few years to take water from Valverde County, Kinney County, and some of those other counties and move it eastward. And, uh, you know, the studies that I've seen, and certainly Albuquerque, New Mexico is a, a good example of, you know, that river water and that groundwater are the same water. And, uh, you know, Laredo a few years ago was going to build a pipeline, or they talked about the city council building a pipeline from Kinney County down to Laredo. Well, I don't know why you would pay to build a pipeline to suck water out of your watershed that would be in the river eventually anyway. So, uh, you know, there's, there's just, you know, too many unknowns about, uh, and, you know, I'm a biologist. And I have taught students for many years, and for many, many years, I have said one of our biggest problems is there are too many of us. And I believe that. <laughs> I believe the human population uh, is going to be limited at some point, and I think water is going to be the limiting factor. I've also said I believe that the wars of the future will be fought over water, and I firmly believe that. I mean, we can do without petroleum. Uh, but we can't do without water. Um, Kip, I wanted to see if you had any thoughts, especially on the groundwater side. You yep, know. I do. And I, uh, first, I, I agree with uh, Andy. Uh, we, we're going to have to come to grips with the, how we regulate, treat, uh, think about water as one, one sphere of resource. And yet, I think uh, there's a lot of talk about complicating it yet further by adding a third layer of a regulatory um, authority uh, on brackish water, individually and by itself, separate from our current groundwater and surface water. So uh, unfortunately, I think um, that's, that's going to muddy the water yet further. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I think the idea, of course, of doing that is to make it easier to get to for uh, desal uh, purposes and, and such as that, but the same old um, uh, things that the legislature struggles with constantly is the balance between landowner rights and the need to manage our, our precious resources. And so um, I, I don't really expect a whole lot to happen in the next session, but it's, you know, those are things that just, um, they fester until somebody can't stand it any longer if we do something uh, one way or the other. Or until a court case happens, which may be the yeah. outcome here. Um, well, we have just a few more minutes before I want to open it up to questions um, from the audience. So uh, I can't resist having you all on the same panel without asking about climate change. Um, you know, it's something that I think we've seen, especially in the past few years, um, has had an impact on re water resources on the, uh, in the state, according to our state climatologist, John Nielsen Gammon. And, many other uh, scientists at uh, public and private universities in Texas and, and other states. And so, you know, I'm wondering um, uh, if you all can talk about um, what you think the state could be doing from a planning perspective. Um, we, we see that especially, I think, in the Colorado River, the Texas-Colorado River watershed these days. We've been getting more rain than we did during the drought of the 50s and yet less inflows into the lake because it's so much drier and the soil moisture is just sucking up all of that water. So. I guess we'll start with you, Carlos, since sure. you're the water planning agency in the state. Not a problem. And, and, and there's, like everything else on water, uh, it, it gets complicated. And Senator Aver talked about things that can muddy it up. And, and there's, 
even more things that we could add, like underflow of, of, of water and, 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 and then what are you, how are you going to protect aquifers, storage and recovery. But to your question, um, there's a lot of things that we already are doing. Uh, to be able to, to plan for what if we have a drought that's worse than the drought of record. You know, state law says that in water planning, in developing the state water plan, we have to target a repeat of the drought of record. And we all know that in Texas, the drought of record is the drought of the 50s. But it's only the drought of record because that's, we've been only keeping records for a short period of time. We know that if we look backwards, in the 1400s and 1500s, there have been droughts that were much, much worse in Texas than the drought of record. So what are regional planning groups doing, to your question? Regional planning groups are still planning for a repeat of the drought of record. And they're doing that by targeting, if it's surface water, the farm yield of those rivers. Some of the regional planning groups, I think five or six already, are going, you know, we get it. We're going to plan for a firm yield. How about if we also plan for something that is worse than the drought of record? Let's go for safe yield, right? Well, I think that that helps us plan for something that may come in the future that may be worse. It is absolutely allowed under state law that you accept the state water plan that way. I think the fact that we revisit the plan every five years and we are able to pick up those change conditions is important. Look, let's face it. Would we have House Bill 4 if we wouldn't have had the drought of 2011? Mm -hmm. And I don't think we would have. Okay, and right. Senator, I think you right. agree. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Texas law, tech, you know, everything that we do, we learn from previous droughts. We need to be able to be nimble to be able to plan and incorporate those changes, climatic changes that may occur uh, in the future. And I think we have a process that allows that because we revisit the plan every five years. What we do know today is that the models are not clear enough to tell us that if those things occur, what would the resulting impact be in Texas? Well, there's one thing we do know. We do know that 50 years from now, based on what uh, Tom said, we're going to have 46 million Texans, and we're going to have 10% less water. Okay? Even if there isn't a drought. Exactly. <laughs> Even if there isn't a drought. But nobody talks about that, right? All of those things are incorporated into state water plans. So what I'm, what I'm trying to say is planning for the future, uh, I think it's important that we plan for something that is worse than the drought of record. I think we're doing that. I think we need to plan on, have a planning process that is nimble and can get those change conditions incorporated. I think the wisdom of the legislature and having us revisit the state water plan every five years uh, allows us to do that. And then let, the last thing, and we can talk an hour about this, what if this is, this drought that we're in right now, the new drought of record? It will change every model that we've relied on in the past, right? It would be a game changer, and we need to be able to incorporate that as well. There was a study, um, I think, released a couple of weeks ago by Cornell, which indicated that we had about a 75% or so probability that this drought would not be in duration longer than what we have called the drought of record but there's a 20 to 50% probability that it will last for a generation. So I think to hear the chairman say that, you know, we're no longer assuming that, the, that the, 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 what we call the drought of record is as bad as it can be is we just can't assume any longer. Yeah, I, uh, in our particular case uh, in uh, Region E, which includes El Paso, uh, we plan on the Rio Grande uh, lack of snowfall in southern Colorado, northern New Mexico. That's our drought, and it was in the 50s as well. But and and that kind of drought, when you when you have lack of snowfall, you don't change overnight. It took in the 50s. It took 35 years for Elephant Butte Dam north of us to fill to capacity. So it's not a short-term kind of fix. So my advice to any water utility, whether it's in Texas or any place else, is to diversify as much mm -hmm. as you can. Make sure you have a strong conservation program. If you can use, if you can reclaim and reuse water, you know, use it. One of the things that we did in El Paso, besides reducing per capita demand, was I, I realized if I had those two programs together, I could reduce the peak demand in the summertime. So, for example, in 1990, we were using about 200 million gallons per day. Uh, this summer, the peak was about 160 million gallons per day, and we probably have 275,000 more people. Mm -hmm. So those kind of strategies have to come into play. But I would say diversify to the extent you can mm -hmm. and, and cooperate and maybe have agreements together with adjoining utilities, you know, to share resources under certain times and conditions. And I think that's what the state water plan tries to encourage, to diversify and to have shared agreements uh, together. Because in the end, 
All politics are local, and what applies one place may not apply someplace else, but to the extent, diversify. And not, and not be fooled by these recent rains, which have been so, <laughs> yeah. so wonderful. Yeah. In the middle of the drought of the 1950s, the Lake Travis was quite a bit lower than it is today. It rained 26 inches over Fredericksburg in 15 hours. The Perdinalis went up 48 feet at Stonewall and 60 feet at Hamilton Pool Road. Where it flows into Lake Travis, it was flowing at two-thirds of the flow of the Mississippi River and filled Lake Travis in 36 hours, mm -hmm. but it did not end the drought. Right. And that's a great point because of the Rio Grande during the drought record. It was interrupted twice by floods, but it did not end the drought. Yeah, well, Ed mentioned Elephant Butte over in New Mexico. I was out there last month, and uh, it's gone up since I was there. Yeah. It was at 7%. Now it's up to 8% capacity. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, at 8%, that means it's 92% empty. Yeah, that's what we tell people. It's 92% empty. Yeah. That's a difference, right? Well, Kip, I wanted you to jump in a little on climate change. We've talked about this before. Um, how far do you think we can go, you know, with the, the Water Development Board with planning for the impacts when the legislature couldn't even pass a bill for an advisory committee on climate change to advise the Water Development Board? Well, I, I, for all the reasons that the chairman outlined a while ago, I, I'm not sure it's necessary for the uh, legislature to take a, a politicized vote. And climate change is just a, you know, it's a, uh, has a negative connotation to some people and it's a positive, it's polarizing. And, and, and therefore, in my opinion, not productive. Uh, I think everybody recognizes that the Earth has been warming for 10,000 years now. And if you don't believe me, go look at Glacier National Park. Mm -hmm. Hurry while you... Yeah, while well, there's glaciers <laughs> there. Uh, mm -hmm. But there's no... Um, you know, I'm not seeing anything uh, in a 50-year in a time block that shows whether or not uh, what industrialization has speeded it up or not. I don't know. And looking forward 50 years, also we we don't know. You know, that's not a meaningful time frame in the in the context of global warming, in my opinion. Uh, but I do think we have to recognize weather patterns change, and they can be a lot worse than what happened in the 1950s. And I think uh, I think the Water Development Board's taken a responsible uh, view of being flexible. Uh, and, and being aware that uh, harder times are coming. Uh, we, we know that's going to happen. It's just, it's just a function of when and, and how prepared can we be. Uh, and, and ultimately, uh, we're, gonna, we're going to uh, use less water than we do today. Mm -hmm. And we can do that in a responsible and easy way. They do it in El Paso. They do it in San Antonio. And we can do it in Waco and Corpus Christi as well when we, when we make our minds up to do it. And we will when the chips are down. Well, um, I want to open up the floor to questions. If uh, members of the audience have questions, uh, feel free to come over to the mics here. I would just ask that you ask a question instead of making a statement, please. <laughs> Hi there. Thank you all so much uh, for being here today. Uh, Andrew Dobbs with Texas Campaign for the Environment. Uh, my concern, my question is, uh, we haven't heard anything about the, I don't know if this is on or not, about the demands uh, that energy production are putting on our water supplies, namely hydraulic fracturing. Um, where does that figure into this? Um, and, you know, how are we taking that into account? And uh, what is the impact going to be for the future, you think? Sure. Uh Happy to address that question. In fact, I got that question yesterday. There was a, a committee hearing on it. Hydraulic fracturing statewide uses less than 1% of the total water use in Texas. But <coughs> wherever it's occurring, obviously, it is a large percentage of the water use that is, that is occurring there. The trends that we're seeing is obviously the, the vast majority of the water that's being used is also coming from groundwater. You see a mix of uh, fresh groundwater in, in brackish. We're seeing an uptick in reuse as well. We also know from studies that the Bureau of Economic Geology has done that in 2011, hydraulic fracturing utilized about 81,000 acre-feet of water. The state of Texas in 2011 did 18 million acre-feet of water. Uh, so that kind of puts it in perspective. We know the hydraulic fracturing by 2030 will peak at about 135,000 acre-feet, and then it'll start to climb 
uh, is there. But in the areas that it's occurring, uh, it is a concern. It is something that is absolutely picked up in the state water plan. It is within the water use criteria of mining, uh, and it is one of the uh, criteria that we have to meet and try to meet all of our future needs. Hope that addresses your question. I would also say that there, there, there's a, uh, a, a large effort for recycling, mm -hmm. reuse, um, new technologies to use even uh, uh, briny water as opposed to fresh water. Uh, going forward, a lot of progress is being made in, in that area. I think that everyone recognizes in our, in our world that, the, that the energy and water are inextricably linked. I would say that the largest, and Ed perhaps could correct me, but the largest expenditure of most for energy for most cities is for moving and treating water. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's no question that they're linked. And, and where, it, where it, uh, the rubber meets the road is in the cost. The cost of water is related directly to the cost of energy in terms of treating it, moving it around, processing it, et cetera. Let me add to that. I, there was a conference last week in Dallas of the Water Reuse, uh, uh, National Water Reuse Organization. And there was another conference here in Austin, uh, Texas Desalination Association. There were a lot of presentations uh, about what Kip talked about, about uh, you know research and, and projects that are underway to try to you know, minimize that kind of impact both on water quality and water quantity. So that's why I mentioned if, if the state itself, you know, can embrace new innovation, new technology going forward, it takes a while to get there, but I think everybody wants to, you know, including all the energy companies, that they can reduce their cost of what they're paying for water mm -hmm. and be, you know, be responsible to the environment. That's basically, that's, that helps everybody, and that's the goal. Um, I think that uh, we really need to pay much closer attention to our water quality issues in Texas of the landfills that are monitored, the groundwater monitoring, 40% of them are leaking into our groundwater. And I'm wondering what the um, uh, legislature might be able to do to toughen up uh, to protect our water quality from leaking landfills and other leaking facilities, whether it's uh, gas stations or abandoned tanks, whatever. That's something the legislature has looked at in the past, Kip, that you remember? Uh, not to my knowledge. Yeah. I mean, you talked about in, in El Paso, you monitor underground if there are leaks, but in Texas there's no system like to put uh, monitors between the liner and, an, and a second liner, for instance, in a landfill or in other facilities. Do you think those are, that's a good idea? I think it is. Uh, like I said, we, um, we, we are, well, the old landfill in El Paso was basically not lined. Uh, you know, the new, the new requirements are to line, and, and that's working, and the TCP requires monitoring wells around that. That's, that's a requirement. Uh, but, yes, any time that you can monitor, uh, you know, and make sure, first of all, that you're not leaking. And I think, I'm not sure which ones you're referring to, but a lot of them were built, of course, without any type of line, et cetera, without the monitoring. But unless something has changed, the TCQ requires new, new landfills to be, either have an impervious clay layer or something that's going to prevent the leakage, but also require liners as appropriate and monitoring wells. Great. Thank you, uh, everyone, for being here. My name is Keith Annis. I'm with the Population Media Center. Uh, I wanted to um, uh, carry on something that Dr. Vaughn said that apparently was very funny um, in terms of, of population. Uh, population growth <coughs> is driving the demand for water use in Texas, and Texas will be lucky if we only have 46 million people uh, by 2050. Um, that, that is a mid-variant projection. Um, it could be much, much higher. Uh, so I'm, my question to each member of the panel is, are any of you willing to seriously look at that and, and even think about some of the very cost-effective and easy ways to address population growth and therefore address demand for water in the future. <laughs> That's a tough question. I mean, obviously, you know, it, it's, it's uh, something that many that, that folks are grappling with across the state. Family <laughs> 
Well, when you think about it, uh, let me ask. Let me answer it this way. When I when I got out of college, um, actually my master's degree was in sanitary engineering because everything was emphasized based on public health. You know, we had cholera, we had typhoid in the early you know start of the 20th century, and then with the Clean Water Act, it switched to you know a lot of it deal with uh, not only wastewater treatment of uh, cities but also industrial, and then now we're into parts per trillion, et cetera, et cetera. But basically, uh, what I'm saying is that uh, today, in today's world, in any city, water means economic development. Because we, we basically have mastered the way to be able to treat water and treat wastewater. So it's economic development. So I, 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 I've never seen a city that's willing to somehow say we're not open for business, you know. So I think it boils down to more responsible use of the water that we have. Uh, yeah, that's exactly uh, the attitude I would think that most uh, in in uh, leadership positions are going to take is not how we can stop the population growth, but rather how are we going to be prepared for it. Uh, and this state water plan mm -hmm. is the primary example of a 50-year look into the future on, and, and uh, being prepared for uh, how much is going to be needed and where is it going to come from. And I think that would, that would be uh, certainly appropriate in all walks of life. And I think that the state water plan very effectively addresses uh, that issue as well. Uh, you know, you look at the projections that the Water Development Board has had because we are charged with giving those projections to the regional planning groups so that they can then plan for the next 50-year horizon. Uh, and our projections have been within a fraction of a percent accurate. Um, and, and so I'm very proud of that, that work effort as well. I agree 100% with what uh, Ed stated. I was a former city manager. Uh, in Brownsville, all cities look about how are we going to deliver better quality of life for folks, growing our tax base. Um, and they all recognize, I believe, and they're recognizing it more and more, that water is a limiting factor in, in how best to address it. I think we have time, unfortunately, just for one more question. Um, okay. Uh, my name is Alberto Sandoval. I work at Rio Grande International Study Center. So I want to uh, address or sort of revisit uh, the, what you said about hydraulic fracturing accounting for less than 1% for statewide usage. Don't you think that's a bit misleading? Um, I was recently in Carrizo Springs and visited other sites on the Eagle Ford Shale. And an area like Carrizo Springs see, has seen a severe drop in their water table. So you can say less than 1% of water use for hydraulic fracturing in Texas, that, that's, that's something you can say, but it, I think it's severely misleading when you go to these local areas and see how people have been affected. And, and I would remind you that what I also said is that is if you look at it statewide, but I also said wherever it is occurring, it represents a significant draw on the water that's available there. Right. I would say, and you know, perhaps uh, Kip can correct me if I'm wrong, the, the, the issue that I have is that I believe that currently that use of water is, is exempt from any kind of regulation mm -hmm. by groundwater management districts, and that probably needs to change. There are some places where uh, uh, oil and gas industry uh, abides by uh, the same regulations as everybody else, but that's, uh, it is not a statewide uh, situation. But, uh, oh, a follow-up question related. Another thing that wasn't brought up when we're talking about water use for hydraulic fracturing is don't you think it's important that the water that gets used for that isn't it it's not potable after maybe that seems like an obvious point but that wasn't addressed um, and maybe one of the questions that comes out of it is the issue with dealing mm -hmm. with the wastewater from um, fracking which has certainly become mm -hmm. you know an, a controversial issue across the state um, Andy. Well, that's another area where innovation is actually taking place. I mean, just like any other industry, there are good actors and there are not so good actors. And there are people out there in that industry who are finding ways to reuse that water. And we just need to make sure that that kind of innovation is, is wider spread across the system because it is happening. And, and, and along those lines, you know, when we were first started thinking about, for example, desal, and Ed and I were talking about it just before we started, one of the most limiting factors, what are you going to do with the brine? Because it makes that water, you know, you could say, if you put it in the wrong place, you treat it inappropriately, it renders that water unusable. Look at the great work that UTEP is doing on taking what previously was thought about 
you know, taking water out of the market, out of the equation, and look at what they're doing to actually extract materials from it and make it a usable product now. And so I think I agree with you 100%. Technology is going to drive us to uh, even better innovation. And Ed, I thank you all for what you all are doing out there. It's phenomenal. That's why it's great to live in a, a great country. Somebody's going to figure out how to make a buck by solving that problem. There you go. <laughs> let, me, let me just say one thing. And, you know, it's great to live in this country, but uh, as you all know, and probably some other panel today will address this, but as you, you know, Mexico changed their constitution and foreign oil companies can start working there. And one of the reasons they did that because they didn't have the technology to do fracking. And so along the Rio Grande, just on the Mexican side, fracking is going to take off and it's going to use those six million gallons per frack just like it does in in Texas. So, you know, I'm, I know we can't do anything about that necessarily, but it's something that we need to be aware of. And, and, and I mentioned that uh, yesterday several of us testified before a subcommittee uh, of the Senate that is specifically looking about how that may impact Texas. So people are keeping a very close eye on that. Well, we're actually uh, out of time. So thank you all so much for being here. Um, thank you so much to our panelists. Yeah, okay. Well, it was nice, nice to, to meet you. Absolutely.